It's a new day for all of us. Hello, my name is Van Ritchie, and it is an absolute pleasure to introduce you to Peel Back the Onion, a regular podcast where you are the most important person of the day and where life issues and challenges get to be peeled back so you have the best day of your life. And now, please welcome the hosts of Peel Back the Onion, Dr. Geraldine Cronin and Dr. Jerry Camarata. Thanks again, Van. We treasure you as a member of the podcast team. I'm Jerry Camarata, and I'm the author of The Fun Book of Fatherhood. And I'm Geraldine Cronin, clinical psychologist, and we are delighted to talk to you about what can help all of us improve the quality of our life, specifically the work we do. For many, being in the wrong job has plagued our lives. We feel trapped, held hostage to a paycheck, sometimes with golden handcuffs, all leading to anxiety and depression due to work dissatisfaction, specifically our youth, those in midlife employment crisis, and our ever booming senior population are questioning what is their purpose and best fit in life. COVID has exacerbated all of this. How much time do we have left? Today we want to explore the useful value of knowing our aptitude, knowing how well we think and what skills we have so our lives can be rewarding in our pursuit of a job, playing in a sport, having a hobby, that matches what we are ready, really fit for. With us today, I'm proud to say, is Steve Green. He's the New York Director of the Johnson O'Connor Research Center, renowned for its worth in the world of aptitude testing and research. Steve has been at the foundation since 1987, and he will be telling us his story shortly. Before we peel back the onion, on this topic of aptitude testing and talking to Steve Green. Let's take a look at this clip. If you have one bucket that holds two gallons and another bucket that holds five gallons, how many buckets do you have? Two. Thank you. Lord, I Now, the clip was just a few seconds long and good for a laugh, but it's not far from the truth about how we are to think, how we assess and use our mental skills so we can be useful to ourselves and others as we transverse this planet and do great things. Steve Green is here with us today, so we may learn about the value and importance of testing. Welcome, Steve. Thank you so much, Jerry. I'm very honored to be here with you today, and I look forward to discussing aptitude testing and its benefits with you. Our pleasure to have you. Um, You are a very special person, and so is Johnson O'Connor in my work over the last 30 years. I find I always use you and the foundation as my go-to place when people are saying to me, what do you do? Where do I fit in? I don't know. How, what's the next step? And I thought that this would be a phenomenally important um, podcast because people don't know what aptitude is. They don't know if it's intelligence. They really have not a clue. 
Why don't you tell us what's aptitude? Sure. Well, an aptitude is a natural ability to do something or learn to do something quickly and easily. And, you know, some people notice that they have a knack for, you know, very quickly and efficiently filling out paperwork or, or brainstorming at a meeting. Uh, but they may not know that this is an actual ability that can be measured. And uh, that's what we do at the foundation. Johnson O'Connor Research Foundation has developed a battery of aptitude tests, about 20 different tests. And we also do a lot of research uh, into what abilities relate to what kinds of jobs. And we do validation studies, both external and internal, uh, just to find out how these aptitudes work in the real world. Uh, the service we provide to our clients is that we give them this in-depth battery of tests. And at the end, we sit down with them and explain their scores and provide them with a list of examples of career fields that match up well with their aptitudes. Um, tell me something. How did you get into it? I actually should have been a client of Johnson O'Connor's testing service. <laughs> uh, I had been bouncing around in different areas of business. I was an English major in college, and I was really a high vocabulary, good at writing. Um, so I thought I'd go into communications areas of business. I went into PR, marketing, sales, and I did pretty well. Um, and I always kind of found that my attitude and value is somewhat different from many of my coworkers. I didn't really feel this was a good fit for me. Uh, so I was starting to cast around and I started looking for other more meaningful jobs. And I think that was important for me to find something meaningful that helped. How me. old were you then? I was in my mid twenties. Okay. And um, lo and behold, uh, I applied for two jobs. One was at a writer for the um, um, botanical garden in Brooklyn. And the other, I saw this incredibly interesting job at the Johnson O'Connor Research Foundation. They give a very in-depth description of the abilities and the type of candidate they're looking for, and the types of values and interests this person would have. So I said, that sounds just like me. <laughs> so I sent in my application. Uh, I was called in for an interview. I was zapped with a few tests during the interview. Now, we don't do this for other companies, but we do like to know how our own employees you know, might fit into the work that we do. So we give them a few tests. And based on the interview and the test, I was hired and then trained intensively and laboriously over the next year on how to give the tests and ultimately how to explain the tests. And I found every part of this process so engaging and fulfilling that I've been here. This is my 35th year at Johnson O'Connor. I feel very honored to have served that long. Well, the people that go to see you are honored because they can't believe what they learn and they use it. And I just had an experience this week with a patient who we were really struggling as to what is she going to do now that she's mentally stabilized after a very big episode of depression. And she was asked earlier to go to Johnson O'Connor to see you. And her mother, who's an attorney, said, why don't you pull out the Johnson O'Connor profile? And what do you know? She said, they told me, don't do tasks that are too tedious, but go ahead with your forensic view and that you are more involved in production and um, project management. And when she left my office, it was based on Johnson O'Connor and the testing that she had a direction to move in. I've had that many times with you. Tell me something. Let's talk. Is an aptitude for our audience, is that something you're born with or is it something you learn? We believe there's a very high degree of heritability 
uh, in aptitudes. Um, there's a lot of similarities among family members. Um, we don't believe that uh, experience affects uh, test scores much. Um, just in my own pe uh, personal experience, I've had you know, some clients who have never had any exposure to music or played an instrument yet score off the charts and all the auditory aptitudes. And then I've had, you know, career accountants who come in and score low in the numerical aptitudes. So being in an area that uses an aptitude doesn't seem to develop. It seems to be innate. Uh, and of course, a, a person can learn to do skills, can acquire skills uh, that are required in a particular job, even if they don't have the aptitude, but it tends to be laborious and uh, tedious and usually not engaging. Whereas the person who has the aptitude tends to excel much more quickly and the labor tends to be uh, joyful rather than tedious. And that's been our experience. How do you um, compare and contrast intelligence and aptitude? Well, um, Johnson O'Connor had kind of a quip about that. He said, you know, if you go through apti you know, uh, IQ testing, you end up with a global score of, say, 138. Um, that doesn't really tell you whether you'd be happy as an architect or an English professor. So the, the difference between IQ testing and aptitude testing is aptitude testing is a profile of separate abilities that don't intercorrelate uh, very highly and that can point people in particular career directions without giving them you know, a score of intelligence. Right. Can you go over what's in the profile with us so that how would you do an aptitude test? Sure. So the, the protocol of aptitude testing, I mean, how does, yes. it, how does it work? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, clients schedule an appointment with us and we tell them you're going to be in for a full day of testing, about six to six and a half hours. We do the testing now in one full day and a lunch break in between. And during that time, uh, the, the examinee will work with one test administrator for half the day and then do audio visual testing for the other half of the day. Um, and they're usually interspersed, so you don't get too much of any one thing. You, know, you do uh, a, a, you know, a, a little bit of uh, audiovisual testing, then you meet with the test administrator, and then you break for lunch, and then you come back and do some more audiovisual testing. So it's kind of split up. And after the testing's done, uh, we compile the results, uh, which is all done very quickly, and uh, we, set, we have a, now a digital uh, report format. And we oh. send that out to the client. Uh, usually the same day that they were tested, so they have a chance to look it over. And then we schedule a Zoom summary session. Usually, you know, it could be the next day or a few days later. You know, some clients need to put it off because they you know, are going on vacation or something. Uh, but then we meet via Zoom, and I pull up their report on the screen, and we go through it together. And they usually record the sessions. And by the end of the sessions, they're usually, you know, very much aware of what their talents are and what kinds of career possibilities exist for them. But it is a lot of information to um, absorb Process. in an hour. Yeah. So uh, we, we also let them know they, they are entitled to a free follow-up discussion within a year. And we send them all sorts of written explanatory material to go through in the meantime. Steve, what has been your experience with the individuals who have their profiles done and the revelation, how because of you, they've been able to peel back on their life and now have a, a new concept of who they are and where they're going. 
Well, it's, it varies. And, you know, I, I work with lots of different age groups. Um, so some of the tell most, us, tell us the age groups. Well, some of the most um, dramatic cases have been people in their you know uh, late thirties and early forties who have discovered, wow, I've been on the wrong track all this time, and they make huge career changes. Uh, one woman in particular, she was in her late thirties. She came, she was a uh, admissions director at a college down south. We were doing a testing trip to that college to test a bunch of students, and she went through the testing and she discovered that she had this very high spatial aptitude that we call structural visualization, which she did not know she had. And she also had this a visual memory called memory for design. And, um, you know, one of the things that came out in the discussion of the results were things like uh, interior design, architecture, industrial design. And it kind of blew her mind. She goes, I'm, I'm, I'm a admissions director at a college. What do I know about 3D design? So she actually, the next semester, audited a design course at the school. And she loved it, uh, but she wasn't quite ready to give up her cushy admissions job. Uh, but as luck would have it, her husband was going through a career change and he got a job in another uh, state um, as, a, as a computer programmer. So she had to leave her cushy job and she says, OK, I'll find another admissions director job. But until then, maybe I'll enroll in an interior design program. Steve, the older you get, does your aptitude diminish? Your it capacity does. To uh, the way it tends to work is they gel during adolescence. Um, they gradually increase, uh, you know, during adulthood, and then they remain fairly stable throughout one's adulthood. And at a certain point, they start to gradually decline. Um, but they remain relative strengths throughout one's life relative to age groups. So, um, you know, if, if a 50-year-old were competing in a short-term memory test with a 20-year-old, it wouldn't be a fair comparison. And yet that 50-year-old would, would have much uh, higher vocabulary and, and work experience and wisdom and knowledge you know, to make up for that short-term memory. How do you get a person who's afraid of tests to take this aptitude test? Well, we get a lot of them. Uh, you know, some I know. of them, we get students with you know different learning differences and ADHD, right. and they've had bad experiences. And right, they tests. come to us almost sometimes as the last resort. It's like, oh, exactly. well, school. And you know, we kind of uh, really tell them strongly that uh, there's no judgments attached to aptitudes. You know, aptitudes are just how you're wired. You can't study for these tests. You can't prepare for them. So just, you know, think of them as challenging puzzles or games. Try your hardest on each one. Some you'll probably enjoy, others you may not. Uh, but we're looking for that whole combination. A lower average score can tell us just as much about a person as a high score. Um, so we try, you know, we can't necessarily undo a lifetime of testing mentality. But right, we, the we fear. hardest, exactly. Yeah, fear me failure. too, and trying to get them to you. How come it's not in high schools? Well, one of the difficulties for doing large-scale group, uh, large group testing is that it's very labor-intensive and time-consuming. It's not like an SAT or a Strong Campbell uh, test or a Myers-Briggs where you can just right. fill out a piece of paper. You, may, you put together blocks, you listen to musical tones, yes. you're moving pins with tweezers. So it's very equipment intensive and labor intensive and time consuming. So we have worked with high schools in the past and continue to do so on a smaller scale. We are working on a, um, a digital battery, a completely digital battery, because we learned uh, through the pandemic, you know, we had to close our offices and, and stop the testing for several months. Right. Um, we said, gee, it would be really good if we had a good digital battery. Now, unfortunately, there are some of those out there, but they're not good. We need to develop a good one that has the same reliability and validity as our test battery. So it's going to require a great deal of time and effort, but we're working on that now. How young can you test somebody? 
Well, the youngest age that we test is 14. Um, you know, some parents say, oh, my kid's 13. So we have, you know, a, a waiver where they can say, look, it may or may not be as accurate as so they waited till 14. But we, and, and even at 14, we say, look, you know, 14-year-olds uh, vary. Some are mature and motivated and others, you know, don't care less about the testing. So it might be better to wait until they're like maybe in their junior year in high school where they're really starting, starting to think about college. The reason why I ask the question, Steve, is I, you think about a very young child. And let us say you did do aptitude testing at three, four, five, six years old, first grade. I'm wondering whether or not the knowledge that you, you, you retrieved from a first grader would then inhibit the creativity and the style of parenting that actually may take away some of the extraordinary opportunities a child could have because they're now too geared to an aptitude. Right. Well, that's one of the reasons why we don't test that early, um, uh, you know, because, first of all, we have no idea whether it would be accurate or not. Uh, we want to make sure we're giving people reliable, valid information that they can use to make wise choices. Uh, what is but, the... Okay, I'm, sorry, go I'm ahead, with Jay. you. No, go I ahead. just wanted to ask you questions. Uh, what would, um, what's the number or percentage that makes you know that when you're doing the testing that you have an aptitude? Uh, the 70th percentile is typically the point at which we look at, at, at it as a high score. You know, in some cases, particularly if someone's come in and they've had, you know, uh, uh, diagnoses of learning differences or HD, ADHD, you know, sometimes they score, you know, their timing is off. So they score lower right. than neurotypical clients, but we look at their relative strengths. So if they have like, you know, 17 fifth percentile scores, but then they've got four that are in the 40th or 50th percentile. Those are standout scores. Okay, so let's go through some of the testing so that people have a sense of what it's about. Um, do you want to discuss a typical profile with me? Yeah, I thought maybe I, I would use my profile. Go ahead. I love it. Because <laughs> I've got a good, clear combination of scores. Uh, All right, so go ahead. Go for it. My spatial aptitude is very well, low. Well, you have to you have to tell people what spatial aptitude. Spatial is. ability is the ability to visualize three dimensional structures in the mind's eye. Okay, and so you have, have to even go make it even more detailed. Yeah, so it, uh, we have two tests that measure that: the wiggly block and paper folding tests. And it's typically high in engineers, architects, mechanics, people who work at designing and building and fixing things, or people who think in three dimensions like computer programmers and software developers. Those are examples of spatial thinkers. Um, okay. you know, they often like working with things and objects and structures. Uh, and I'm a non-spatial thinker, meaning I, low, I score low in the spatial. And people who score low in the spatial tend to excel in the study of liberal arts or business, where they deal more with that, uh, words, ideas, concepts. A typical non-spatial thinker would be a lawyer, a psychologist, um, a writer, um, an accountant, business executive. They tend to be non-spatial, whereas the spatial would be typical of the engineer, the physician, the computer programmer. So I, I scored low in that. And that was no, you know, that was no uh, surprise to me because I was an English major and I just loved the liberal arts and the social right. sciences. Then you go to another category here, divergent thinking. Yes. So my divergent thinking. Um, well, let's you know, define it for the audience. What's absolutely. divergent so thinking? So there's, there's two different types of divergent thinking. As the name suggests, you start you start with a, a single starting point and then you branch out. So idea four is measuring the ability to generate a rapid flow of ideas from a single stimulus question. And so give me the stimulus. 
question. Well, it's just a fanciful question. I don't want to give it because if a person hears the particular question, then they will. That's be a make up one. Yeah. So, so make up one like, uh, how would your life be different if you couldn't drink water? You know, something like that. Oh. And it's something no one's ever thought about, or maybe not that important a question. Then you'd, Got you know, it. And, and what do you think other people should do? So people are given like eleven minutes just to ideate on this question and write as much as they can. And some people just pour ideas out of their head. Um, and those types of people who are high in idea euphoria need uh, to be in work that has a lot of variety to it because variety stimulates idea production, whereas repetition often stifles it. And, and boys them. To, exactly. And then they also need to do work where they're communicating information. So it's a typical trait of a salesperson, a lawyer, you know, people who use ideas to persuade, influence, inform, educate other people. Okay, I've heard that most people can be um, idea people, but they can't be implementers. Yeah, well, some people say, well, I just want a job where I can come up with the, other, with the idea and other people can do it. <laughs> right, exactly. I say, well, I don't know any such job. I think sometimes you have to bite the bullet and come up with the idea and then somehow find a way to get it done, even just through delegating to other people. Yeah, but do people who are, do most people who have ideas, are, are they also I, implementers? Do you usually find the same aptitude for both? Well, you know, that's, that's not something we really measure. Like okay. someone who comes up with an idea, for instance, if you're a salesperson, your job is to go out and convince somebody to buy the product. Right. When right. I was in sales, they had the person who went out and, uh, and uh, maybe called and set up the sale, and then the person went in and closed it and had all the paperwork. Got it. Got it. Um, so, you know, in many cases, you do have to implement your own ideas. If you're a brainstormer and you're sitting there in a room and you're an executive and come up with ideas, obviously you're going to pass uh, the uh, implementation of that idea under, to the underlings who are going to, you know, write up a report and call so-and-so and make sure this and this and this. Got are done. It. So, yeah, okay. the higher up you get, the more likely you are to be the, the person coming up with the ideas. And then you can delegate the implementation of them. You know, to people maybe who have that that talent. Talk to me about foresight. The foresight is seeing possibilities. Um, uh, the test is uh, one is uh, presented a series of abstract line drawings and slides, and they have to write all the words that it makes them think of or brings to mind. And some mm -hmm. people come up with lots of possibilities. Those are high foresight individuals. And possibilities exist in the future. And the high foresight person tends to, in a sense, dwell in the future. They tend to be motivated by long-term, distant, challenging goals. Uh, they often are attracted to causes like saving the environment uh, or eradicating hunger or finding a cure for cancer. Uh, the low foresight person tends to be much more zen in the here and the now. And they are the pe people who really thrive when they make a daily checklist and cross every step off. They like to see more immediate gratification and progress. So that really suggests an approach to goal setting that best suits each person. Got it. Very interesting. All right. Okay, we've got to go quickly down. Oh, okay. On this. All right, so <laughs> I, I could talk just, for hours. <laughs> I know. But I could talk to you for hours. All right. One other one is convergent thinking, please. Yeah, so uh, conversion thinking, inductive reasoning is the ability to reason uh, quickly from the particular to the general. So it's used in diagnostic troubleshooting. Uh, physicians, psychologists, business executives often score high, uh, but particularly those who are doing so under time pressure, like, for instance, the emergency room physician or the crisis counselor. Okay, I'm going to stop you for a minute. I want to show a pattern. 
because we don't have much time, but we may have you back. Take a look at the number pattern that you showed on the task. Can you explain that, please? Sure. So um, that uh, is the ability to uh, see sequences, uh, um, understand numerical patterns and relationships with numbers. And it's very useful in high-level numerical analysis. It's a typical trait of mathematicians, engineers, and people who understand what story the numbers are telling. Like if you look at a set of statistics, it's not number crunching, it's understanding what that means. The public okay. health professional looking at numbers says, okay, look, this, this disease is spreading rampantly and, and this is how we're gonna have to curtail it. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show this, I'm gonna tie it up at the end. The person then gets from you a sense of what field they should follow. Yes. Could and better, more than that, even like uh, to begin with, if they're students, yeah, what field, but also, you know, what, what to study, uh, what kind of school to go to, what to major in, um, and then you know, ultimately what career direction to follow. Well, what's important here, Steve, is that you give people hope, you give yes. them opportunity. And these are individuals that perhaps who never, if they didn't have an aptitude test, perhaps would wander right. and their life, their skills, their talent and their creativity would be lost and a whole generation would never have the opportunity to experience it. So coming on board and letting us know how you help people peel back their onion and give them an opportunity to succeed is, uh, is really great and we, we appreciate it. Thank well, you really so it, much you? for everything you have done and for all the patients and people that I have sent to you who couldn't speak more highly about Johnson O'Connor and your work specifically. Thank you, Steve. So much, Jerry. I really appreciate your support over the years. Great day to you. Have a great Thank day. You. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye okay. now. You too. Take care. My commentary on meeting with Steve Green and knowing him for over 35 years is that his aptitude testing has been an enormous adjunct to, to clinically advancing many people's careers, to helping them to figure out what's the best fit. Because if you have an aptitude and your aptitude is satisfied, you feel fulfilled. Some of us don't even know what they are. And I've had patients who have come in, and I'm going to give you three vignettes very quickly. One was a woman who really believed that she was an idea person. And she was trying to come up with all sorts of ideas. She was about 50. She hadn't worked. And she wondered, what is she going to do with the rest of her life? And I said, why don't you go down to Johnson O'Connor and let them do an aptitude test and see what they come up with? You have nothing to lose. And it turned out she wasn't an innovator. She was an implementer. And it turned out she really was a teacher. And it turned out also that she became one of the best teachers one could imagine because she was able to then even refine it into reading disabilities and working with small groups of children. Another case, which is even more fascinating in some ways. She entered my office and she had a blue streak in her head right in her hair. And I noticed that this was non-traditional. That's going back 25 years ago. And she was an attorney doing some very boring work for a major firm where she was getting paid a lot of money. She was in gold handcuffs. Also, her parents put her through law school and there was a lot of financial debt. 
But she said, I'm so unhappy. I don't know what to do. So I said to her, go down there and let's figure out what's going on. I see the blue streak in your hair. I don't know what to make of it, but there's some sort of dissonance here. So she went down there and what do you know? They found out that she didn't belong in law. And she came back and said to me, I'm a creative. So what happened? She had to tell her parents where she was incredibly anxious because they were not able to afford all of this and law school. And she felt like she was disappointing them. So she went ahead and took classes that she paid for at NYU over the summer to see if Johnson O'Connor was real or not. Well, what do you know? It turned out that she was a very creative woman, and she decided eventually to integrate it with law by helping lawyers figure out what they could do creatively for themselves. So that's another case in point. Then I had a woman who turned to me and said to me, you know what? I can't believe that I went down there and they told me I have a musical aptitude. She said, I, even, I never knew it. So she went out, they got a piano, and she's playing the piano all of the time. I have found, based on the work that I've done with Johnson O'Connor over 35 years and with Steve Green, giving the information uh, not only to the person who's there, but also he'll provide it for someone else coming in with the client. And he'll also allow the psychologist to come in as well. Uh, given permission, so that everybody here can then figure out how can this be applied and used in the here and now, not 10 years from now, now, so that a person can feel more fulfilled, have a better sense of self-esteem, and really have the best fit, the goodness of fit. That's what we're talking about. Because if you have a sat an aptitude that's satisfied, you're going to be a very happy person. So my suggestion is, if you have children or if you're afraid of tests, don't be. This is a place that will help you to find a direction. You're going to learn more about yourself, and you're also going to get rid of the stuff you don't need to look at or pay attention to, but you're going to focus on the stuff that you can. And then they will help you as well to adapt, massage, and manage that so you can be the best person you can be, and then really make an impact out there in whatever way you want. So this is uh, a privilege to have met with uh, Steve Green. It was a privilege to have this um, Aptitude podcast, and I would suggest to all of you, uh, take, a, take a chance. You have nothing to lose, and you might find out that you've got a lot to gain. Words of Wisdom. Until next time, we hope all things will go your way and the core of who you are is always a beacon seen by others. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. If there's an issue which you would have discussed on Peel Back the Onion, please send us a note to peelbacktheonionpodcast at gmail.com. We will always try to get as many emails on the air as we can. From your hosts, Dr. Geraldine Cronin and Dr. Jerry Camerata, along with a terrific production staff at K-Town Studios in Kingston, New York, and from me, Van Ritchie, we hope every day is a great day for you and everyone in your life.